It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been looking at the most important trial in the history of mankind, the trial of Jesus. And last week I mentioned that Jesus' trial has six stages to it. It started when they took Jesus to Annas, uh, and then from Annas they took Jesus to Caiaphas, uh, and then from Caiaphas they went to the, before the Sanhedrin, and they convicted Jesus of blasphemy and sentenced him to death. Uh, and then they needed to take Jesus uh, from the Jewish court to the Gentile court, and they brought Jesus before Pilate, and that was the fourth stage that we looked at last week. But something that John doesn't record for us is that Pilate, when he hears that Jesus is from the region of Galilee, says, oh, wait, that's Herod's district. Take him to Herod. And so they take Jesus to Herod. Herod, you know, just mocks Jesus, doesn't convict him of anything, and then sends him back to Pilate for the sixth and final stage of this trial. And that's the stage in which we're going to look at this morning that John records for us. And in this final stage, this final trial of Jesus, we're going to see three responses that different groups have to the reality that Jesus is the King of the Jews. First, we're going to see the lengths that Pilate goes to not to make a decision against Jesus that would kill him. But as you probably know, Pilate's ultimately going to get to a place where he does make a decision against Jesus. Second, we're going to see the mockery of the Roman soldiers towards the idea of Jesus being the king of the Jews. And third, we're going to see the lengths the religious leaders go to in order to have Jesus killed. Now, these three responses are very important for us to understand because they're the same three responses that people today have to the idea of Jesus being king, of Jesus being God, of Jesus being the savior of the world. And many people are like Pilate and they, you know, they kind of see Jesus maybe as a good man or as an innocent man, but they're trying their best not to make a decision concerning Jesus. But the pressure of the crowd, the pressure of the world ultimately leads them to a decision of rejecting Jesus as their king. Others today are are like the Roman soldiers. They think the idea of Jesus being king is just ridiculous. They mock that idea. They mock who he is. They mock what the Bible declares, and they mock anyone who believes in it. And then there are others today like the religious leaders that they don't believe that Jesus is the king. They actually hate the idea of Jesus, and they'll go to extreme lengths in order to try to destroy Jesus, destroy the word of God, and destroy those who put their trust in in him. So as we look at these three responses to Jesus being the king of the Jews, 
that's going to be important for us to understand, mainly because I want us to recognize how do we respond to these types of people? I mean, we live in a world where we have these three responses around us all the time. So as believers trying to engage the world to help them come to know Christ, how do we respond to the different responses that we're going to see to who Jesus is? And there's going to be four practical things that I'm going to share this morning, four practical responses that you and I can have that will hopefully help us be better equipped to reach people in these three different groups for Christ. So as we look at this passage, hopefully we'll gain a better understanding of of how people in this world respond to Jesus, but also how we should respond to those who have yet to accept Christ for themselves. We're going to start with the first response that we see. It's going to be a response from Pontius Pilate, but Pilate's going to have kind of a a lot of responses throughout the text that we're going to look at this morning. But, you know, one thing that we're going to see with Pilate is that the reason he does all that he does is basically for the same reason. So as we look at these different plans that he has, it's ultimately going to come down to the same ultimate reason that he does it. And that is because Pilate doesn't want to make a decision against Jesus to put him to death. And this is something that we saw last week in in John chapter 18. You know, the religious leaders made it very clear when they came to Pilate, they were there for one main reason. Pilate, all we want from you is to sentence Jesus to death. We don't have that authority. You do. And so we want you to condemn Jesus and crucify Jesus to kill him. That, That was their desire. And so after speaking with Jesus privately, Pilate comes to the conclusion that Jesus is innocent, and he tells the religious leaders, I find no fault in Jesus at all. Now, in order to get out of having to make a decision against Jesus to put him to death, Pilate comes up with his first plan. And the plan is basically, hey, you know what? Every Passover, I have a tradition to release someone to you guys. A guilty criminal can go free. And so his plan is, hey, I will just offer to release Jesus, the king of the Jews. I mean, surely if he's the king of the Jews, he's going to be popular among the crowd. They're going to want him. So I'll release him and I'll escape the decision that I have to make against Jesus. I won't have to make it at all. And so he's hoping that this first plan is going to work. But as we noted last week, the religious leaders, they're not having that. And they get the crowd to say, no, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas, the murderer, the robber, the rebel. Give us him and you keep Jesus and crucify him. So uh, Pilate's first plan doesn't work. And so he decides to come up with a second plan. A plan that he feels, okay, if that didn't work, I want to do something that's going to appease the religious leaders, something that's going to cause them to be willing to release Jesus so I do not have to put him to death. And we see the start of this second plan here as we come to John chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, Luke's gospel kind of helps us understand the thinking that Pilate has here. What plan does he have in scourging Jesus? In Luke 23, 16, we're told an important bit of information. I will therefore chastise him and release him. So this second plan of Pilate is, hey, I'm going to chastise. I'm going to scourge Jesus. And then my plan is after I do that to him, I'll release him. And so I will escape any decision I have to make as to whether or not to put him to death. And Pilate thinks that this is going to satisfy 
the crowd. This is going to satisfy the religious leaders. And the reason he would think this is because a Roman scourging was a brutal, brutal thing to go through. And so he's hoping that as Jesus goes through this brutal scourging, surely the religious leaders will accept that as punishment for whatever they feel Jesus is guilty of. Now, during a scourging, the Romans used what was called a flagrum. You can see from this picture, the flagrum had several leather cords, but it was, you know, a normal whip is just a leather cord. This had bone and metal and things like that, rock attached to it. And the purpose was to ultimately inflict more pain and more damage to the person that you'd be whipping. And so if you whip with just leather cords, obviously you would strike the skin and it would break the skin. But this grabs hold of the skin, and when you pull the whip back, it literally rips chunks of muscle and skin and, and totally just, you know, destroys the person's back it would have caused uh, huge pain and so Pilate's bringing this brutal punishment to someone he thinks is innocent he's already said a couple times I find no uh, fault in this man and he's doing this because he's hoping the religious leaders are going to accept this brutal scourging as enough that they're going to look at Jesus and they're going to say okay you can let him go now that that's a, a enough of a punishment for him Now, the people that Pilate commands to scourge Jesus are the Roman soldiers. And we're going to see the Roman soldiers do more than just scourge him. And this is the second group, uh, and and we're going to see the response they have to the idea of Jesus being the king of the Jews in verses 2 and 3, which tells us this. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. So these Roman soldiers, they don't only brutally scourge Jesus, but they also mock Jesus and mock the idea of Jesus being the king of the Jews. And they did this by doing three things. First, they twisted a crown of thorns and they jammed that on Jesus's head. Now, here's a picture of what a crown of thorns would have looked like. And just imagine the pain of having those thorns jammed into your head. You know, and something I think is interesting to note about Jesus wearing a crown of thorns is that thorns were one of the consequences of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sin, God comes to them and he shares with them, here are consequences that you and all the descendants, including us, are going to have to deal with. And one of the consequences of Adam's sin was that thorns would now grow out of the ground. You see, in the Garden of Eden, there were no thorns. Thorns didn't exist before Adam's sin. This was a consequence of Adam's sin. And the thing that I just find interesting about this is Jesus is literally wearing the consequences of the sin of Adam on his head. And I think that's a powerful picture because that's the reason Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross to deal with our sin and the consequences of our sin. And that's why he's willingly going through all that he goes through at this point moments. So the first thing the soldiers do to mock Jesus being king of the Jews is they put this crown of thorns on his head. And the second thing they do to mock Jesus is they put a purple robe on him. Now, purple, any purple garment at that time was typically only worn by kings or really wealthy people because the dye used to make a purple garment was really expensive. And so you would typically only see this among kings. And so they're placing this purple robe on Jesus as a mockery to him. 
And the third thing they do to mock Jesus is they say to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And this was the way in which you would greet a king, like Caesar. Anybody who came in these Roman soldiers, if Caesar came by, they would say, Hail, Caesar. You know, you would always hail and then, you know, the title of that person. And so the title that they're giving to Jesus is the King of the Jews. Now, all three of these things that the soldiers are doing to mock Jesus are connected with the idea of Jesus being a king. Kings wear crowns, kings wear purple, and kings have people declare, Hail, King of whatever to them. Now, they don't believe that Jesus is the King of the Jews. They're doing this not because of a belief in Jesus as King. They're doing this to mock the idea that Jesus is a King. They're thinking, this is ridiculous. Look at you. We discourage you. You're no King. And they're doing this just to mock Him. And this mockery is also designed to cause a lot of pain. It's not a golden crown they put on His head. They put a crown of thorns to cause pain. Jesus was just scourged. His back is torn open and bloodied. And now they put a garment on to, and they're going to pull that garment off, which is going to cause a lot of pain. And we're told after they say, Hail, King of the Jews, they beat Him with their hands to cause a lot of pain. So the soldier's response to Jesus being the King of the Jews is one of violent mockery and ridicule. They think the idea of Jesus being King is absolutely ridiculous. Now, this kind of violent mockery and ridicule is something that we see in our world today directed towards the idea of Jesus being king, the idea of Jesus being God, the idea of Jesus being the only way to salvation. Many people think that is a ridiculous concept, and so they mock it. And they mock those of us who believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible. And we shouldn't be surprised that people today are mocking, scoffing at Jesus, at Christianity, because the Bible warned us that this would increase in time. 2 Peter 3.3 tells us, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. I believe that we are living in the last days, and the Bible tells us, hey, in the last days, guess what? There's going to be lots of scoffers, and we see that today. Lots of people mocking Jesus, mocking Christianity, and mocking Christians, and they think what we believe and who we believe in is just ridiculous. And I found one of the best ways to respond to people who think what we believe is so foolish is to do what 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. It tells us this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. One of the, the struggles that we often have, I know that I definitely had it in my younger Christian years, is when people mock our beliefs. Our sinful tendency is one to respond with mocking them back. And the reality is we have a huge amount of evidence for why we believe what they believe, uh, what we believe, and they have very little. So, you know, we have much more reason actually to mock them than they do to mock us. And sometimes we get into these debates, and I see them on social media all the time where we think, you know what, I'm going to mock someone into the kingdom of God. 
You know, and I tried that when I was in Bible college and I was, you know, studying a lot of apologetics, defending the faith. You know, I started kind of ridiculing people. That was my approach. And guess what? I never ridiculed someone into the kingdom of God. I never mocked someone into the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work. And if you think going on social media and mocking people and ridiculing them or belittling them for their beliefs is going to change them and, and make them come to Christianity, you're surely mistaken. That's not how you reach people. But notice we're told to do it with gentleness and do it with respect. If you want to reach people, you got to be ready to give an answer for why you believe what you believe, but do it in a gentle, respectful way. The goal should be not to prove them wrong, but to reach them for Christ. Not to you know, show them how stupid they are, but to reach them for Christ. And so you, know, you can have the answers that show them their foolishness or show them they're wrong. But if you do it in the wrong way, you're never going to reach them for Christ. And so if the goal is to reach them, make sure you're doing it with gentleness and respect, even when they're not gentle and respectful towards you. And that's when it gets hard. You know, they mock us. You know, they're hateful towards us. You know, they try to belittle us. You know, it's it's hard sometimes to take the high road and say, you know what, I'm still going to be gentle with you. I'm still going to love on you. I'm still going to uh, approach you with respect, even though you're being very disrespectful to me. So the first way that we should respond to those who have not accepted Christ is by being ready to give an answer to them for why you believe in Jesus and do it with gentleness and respect. So now the soldiers, they've scourged Jesus, they've mocked Jesus, and now Pilate is going to bring Jesus before the religious leaders and before the crowd and hoping that his second plan has worked. That now that he's caused this great suffering in Jesus, the people will be willing to release Jesus and he won't have to make a decision against him. And so let's see how this plan works in verses 4 through 8. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. So Pilate comes out before the religious leaders. He brings Jesus out next to him. And he says the same thing that he said before he had Jesus scourged. He says, I find no fault in Jesus. He wants to reiterate that reality that I don't find any fault in this guy. But you know what? I still had him brutally scourged. And I think just try to picture this as Jesus is standing next to Pilate and his you know, skin's just all mangled and his face would have been all beaten. And so he's standing there with this crown of thorns and this robe on him. And Pilate, notice what Pilate says. He says, behold the man. Notice Pilate doesn't say, behold the king. He says, behold the man. You see, through this statement, Pilate is trying to convince the people, hey, look at Jesus, he's just a man. He's no threat to anyone. Look at, he's just a bloodied, beat up man that's been scourged and he should just be released now. He wants the crowd to have sympathy for Jesus, to feel sorry for Jesus, to think, you know what, he suffered enough. And Pilate's reiterating, I don't even think he's guilty of anything and I still did this to him. You should now allow him to be released. Well, this is Pilate's second plan. 
A plan to not have to make a decision against Jesus to put him to death. Now, for a typical crowd, if you put yourself in that situation and you saw what Jesus had just gone through and all the, the scars and the blood and everything that's standing right before you, you, know, you probably would be filled with sympathy. You probably would think, you know what, he's gone through enough, release him. But this isn't a typical crowd. It's a crowd full of religious leaders who hate Jesus and are willing to do anything in order to kill him. And so the religious leaders, they, they see what's going on. They hear Pilate's word of, once again, I find no fault in this man. And they, behold the man. They recognize he's trying to get Jesus released. And so they cry out like they did before, crucify him, crucify him. And the statement shows the religious leaders have no sympathy at all for Jesus, no sympathy at what he just went through. They want him dead. In our world today, there are a lot of people who respond to Jesus like the religious leaders did. They hate Jesus. They want Jesus destroyed. They persecute those who believe in Him. And one of the best things we can do to reach people who are full of hate like this is to demonstrate the love of Christ to them. The second way that we should respond to those who have not accepted Jesus is to show Jesus' love to them. We need to demonstrate the love of Christ to people who hate Him. But they need to recognize that their hatred for Jesus is not founded. They need to see Jesus doesn't hate them. Jesus loves them. Jesus gave his life for them. Jesus wants a relationship with them. And you know what? One of the best ways that they can see the love of Jesus demonstrated practically is through you and I. That we show love to them. That Jesus says, you know what? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and spitefully use you. That as we demonstrate that love, it starts to melt hearts. It starts to work in hateful people. You know, there are testimony after testimony after testimony from this moment in time all the way to now of people like Paul, like others who just hated Jesus and hated his followers and persecuted them and killed them. And it was the love of those people towards that persecutor, towards that hater of Jesus that ultimately helps bring them to a place where they recognize the love of Christ for them, and came to a place of accepting the gospel message. When we show Jesus' love to people who hate Him, God uses that to help us reach them. So Pilate's second plan to keep him from making a decision against Jesus hasn't worked. And so he quickly comes up with a third plan he hears the religious leaders cry out again, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate says to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate's third plan to keep him from making a decision against Jesus in order to put Jesus to death is to pass off the responsibility of that decision to the religious leaders. That's why Pilate says to these religious leaders, you take Jesus and crucify him, for I find no fault in in him. What Pilate is saying is, hey, since, since I don't find any fault in Jesus, and you guys do find fault in Jesus, I'm going to pass off the responsibility of crucifying Jesus to you. You guys make the decision to crucify Jesus, and you guys carry out that decision. Now, something important to note here is that what Pilate is suggesting goes against Roman law. In 7 AD, Rome took the right of capital punishment away from the Jews. 
That's why the Jews came to Pilate to begin with. If they had the right of capital punishment, they would have already killed Jesus. They came to Pilate for one reason. Pilate, we're not allowed to kill people. We want Jesus is dead, so we need you to kill him for us. But Pilate is basically saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to relinquish that to you, which he did not have the power to do. You see, he's going against his own law and his own authority. He was the man, the Roman governor. He's the one who should have been making a decision as to whether Jesus lives or dies. So Pilate's third plan to keep him from making a decision against Jesus to put him to death is to break Roman law, break his Roman responsibility, and pass that decision responsibility on to the religious leaders. Well, this third plan also doesn't work. Because the religious leaders are not going to accept this unlawful suggestion of Pilate's. And so they answer Pilate by talking about their own law. Pilate, you're not even following your law, but we'll tell you about our law and the reason why Jesus needs to die. They say this, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, it's important to note, this is the first time that Pilate is actually hearing the real accusation that the religious leaders have against Jesus. Remember when they first came to him, they didn't give him anything, and then they made up three that don't even, uh, aren't the real things, like, oh, you know, he told people not to pay taxes, you know, he's a, he's a king against Caesar. But now, they bring up the real thing, because in the Jewish trial, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. And they sentence him to death. And now they're finally telling Pilate of the actual accusation that they bring against Jesus. And what they're saying is true in the sense of their law says if someone blasphemies, they should be put to death. Just Jesus wasn't blaspheming. He was just telling the truth because he is God. But Leviticus 24, 16 says, whoever blasphemy in the name of the Lord shall be put to death. So the law does say if someone is guilty of blasphemy, they should be put to death. And the religious leaders believe that Jesus is guilty of this. And so notice here that when Pilate hears this actual accusation against Jesus, we're told in verse 8, he was the more afraid. Now, Pilate's fear comes from this new knowledge that Jesus didn't just claim to be king of the Jews, which is what he heard first, but Jesus also claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate's fear also comes not just because he heard this from the religious leaders, but because of something that happened, we're not sure exactly the timing, but Matthew's gospel tells us during this trial, Pilate's wife reveals something to him. And the association with what he heard from his wife and what he now hears that Jesus claimed being the Son of God, it brings some fear to him. Notice what Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife told him in Matthew 27, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. God sent Pilate's wife a dream concerning the situation in Jesus, and she knows enough to come to Pilate and say, Don't have anything to do with this just man. I realize Jesus is a just, guilt-free man because I have had this dream And you need to recognize, I've suffered many things in this dream. Don't don't do anything to him. So imagine being Pilate, hearing that from his wife. I'm sure she didn't have these dreams all the time. This is something very unique. That would have probably startled him a little bit. Like, wow. And now all of a sudden he's hearing Jesus claim to be the Son of God. And he's starting to put these two things together. And he's now filled with fear. And the reason he's filled with fear is he thinks that possibly this could be true. 
that Jesus could be a god. Now, in Roman mythology, sometimes the gods came to the earth. And so it's more likely that Pilate is fearful that he just killed or, or just scourged some Roman, uh, some god that came down to earth, and, and now he's being asked to make a decision as to whether or not he's going to kill this person that might be a god. So Pilate's first three plans don't work, and now he's not sure what to do. And now the stakes have just gotten higher. He realizes, I might not just be making a decision about a man here. I might be making a decision about something greater. So Pilate wants a little more private time with Jesus to help make a decision concerning what he's going to do with Jesus. And so he decides to take Jesus back in the praetorium to have another private conversation with him. We see that in verses 9 through 12. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. After Pilate hears this accusation, the true one, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he takes Jesus back into the praetorium. They have another private conversation, and Pilate asks a very good question of Jesus. The question is, where are you from? Now, this is a good question because if Jesus is God, Pilate wants to know where he's from, but you know what? Pilate should have already known the answer to this question because in the last private conversation, Jesus answered that question. Remember, Jesus said that he was a king and that his kingdom was not of this world. Yeah, I'm not from this world, Pilate. I've already answered that question for you. And so Jesus is silent. He doesn't answer this question. And Pilate's quite taken back from that. I'm sure that every person in front of Pilate was begging for their life when they knew that Pilate could sentence them to death or could release them. And so the fact that Jesus doesn't say anything, Pilate's kind of confused about that. And he actually asks, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? You see, Pilate believes that he's the person who has the power over Jesus's life. If he wants Jesus crucified, Jesus is going to be crucified. If he wants Jesus released, Jesus will be released. Well, Jesus is going to respond to help Pilate understand something about Pilate's power, where that power comes from, and the only reason that Pilate could have any power over Jesus at all. Jesus says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus is wanting Pilate to see, hey, Pilate, you couldn't have any power at all over me unless it had been given to you from God. That's the only reason you have power right now. That's the only reason that you have this ability to, to make a choice as to whether or not I'm going to be crucified. It's because I gave it to you. And I love this because John continues to reveal this. We've seen this throughout all that's been going on, that Jesus is in full control. He was in full control when he was arrested. He's still in full control now. If he wanted to stop all of this, he could. Nobody has power over Jesus to force this upon him. Jesus has the power, and he has given power to people like Pilate. But you know what? That does not absolve Pilate of how he uses that power. You know, a lot of people in our world today are in political power or different things, and, and God's given them a role and given them power, and that just makes them more accountable. What are you going to do now with this power? Pilate, what are you going to do now with this choice of Jesus? Are you going to release him or are you going to crucify him? 
Well, after the conversation with Jesus, Pilate is now even more convinced, and we're told from then on, Pilate sought to release him. He's already been trying, but now it's like, I really, really want to release Jesus. I do not want to make a decision to condemn Jesus to death. So Pilate's first three plans to keep him from making that decision have all failed, and so he's going to try one more final plan to try and not make a decision against Jesus. We see this plan in verses 12 through 15. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucified him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Pilate's still trying to find a way to release Jesus, but the religious leaders are willing to go to whatever lengths necessary to make sure that does not happen. And so when Pilate, the religious leaders see Pilate is still not wanting to kill Jesus, notice what they say to Pilate. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, I want you to note something interesting here. The religious leaders have been trying to get Pilate to sentence Jesus to death. And the way in which they've been doing that is by accusing Jesus of crimes that they thought Pilate would think are so severe and such a threat to Rome that he would do something against Jesus. Well, now that hasn't worked. So they're going to change strategy. The focus of Jesus and his crimes isn't doing it. So now they change to focusing on Pilate and the reason he should kill Jesus. And notice the reason that they give to Pilate for why he should kill Jesus. They say, Pilate, if you let Jesus go, you are not Caesar's friend. And they give the reason for why Pilate wouldn't be Caesar's friend if he let Jesus go, because whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. You know, when they initially made this accusation against Jesus saying, oh, he's a king, that was the implication. He's a king against Caesar. He's going to try to rise up a rebellion against Caesar. And so what they're saying is Jesus has made himself a king, so he's speaking against Caesar. So if Pilate, if you release Jesus, who's against Caesar, guess what? You are not Caesar's friend. Now, the religious leaders knew that Pilate probably cared more about pleasing Caesar and being a friend of Caesar than anyone else in the world. That's Pilate. If I could please Caesar, oh man, then my life would be worthwhile. So they knew this statement directed towards Pilate's relationship with Caesar would motivate him more than the accusations they've made against Jesus. You see, what the religious leaders are ultimately doing is trying to get Pilate to choose between Caesar and Jesus. And their hope is that he cares more about Caesar and less about Jesus. And if that's the case... They think, well, then you should kill Jesus. Well, the strategy of the religious leaders against Pilate, it's a strategy we see today. It's a strategy that comes straight from the pits of hell. Satan uses this strategy. The world uses this strategy. You see, Caesar represents what this world has to offer. And what Satan tries to do is to get people to choose between this world and what it has to offer 
in Jesus and what He has to offer. And unfortunately, it's been a very successful strategy because many people are choosing the world and the things of this world and they're rejecting Jesus. James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James makes something very clear. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. You're only going to be a true friend to one or the other. If you're trying to be a friend of the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. And guess what? For those of us who are friends of God, the world will be our enemy. They're going to come against us. But James is making a real strong case. you, you got to make a choice. Do you want to be a friend with Jesus, stand with Him, stand with the Word of God, or do you want to be a friend of the world and ultimately stand with Satan? Now, the reason Satan has been successful with this strategy is because he's convinced people that they're better off following the world. They're better off with the things that this world has to offer than following Jesus and what Jesus has to offer. And this is why it's so important for us to share the gospel with these people. Because the gospel reveals the greatest thing that God has to offer. It reveals, you know what, there's one thing this world can never give you. No matter, you know, you can search for everything that it has, but you know what, the one thing you'll never get from it is salvation. What God offers is so much more than this world could ever offer. And Jesus even says, you know, what good is it if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? which is far more valuable. That's what Jesus offers. The world can't even come close. So the third way we should respond to those who have not accepted Jesus is we should share the gospel with them. You know, this is the most important thing we can do. And I'm sharing other things because I think they're practical. I think they're helpful. But you know what? If you love people and you're ready to share evidence for why you believe what you believe and the person realizes, you know what? God loves me and they understand there's evidence for Christianity, but they still don't know the gospel. Guess what? They're still going to hell because it's only the gospel message that's going to save someone. You know, just a knowledge of God's love or a knowledge of the evidence for the Bible, that's not what saves people. And so we can't just leave it there. We can't just do nice things for people, take care of their practical needs. We got to get to the most important message of all, the gospel message, the gospel that saves. But you know what those other things, loving people, being ready to answer questions, those definitely open up doors for the gospel. But make sure you don't neglect sharing and communicating clearly the gospel message. So now the strategy of the religious leaders have changed. It's no longer a focus on Jesus and what he should be convicted for. The focus is on Pilate and the reason why Pilate should kill Jesus. Well, let's see how Pilate responds, starting in verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. When Pilate hears the religious leaders and the new kind of way in which they're approaching him and saying, you know what, you're not a friend of Caesar if you release Jesus, I think he gets to a point where he realizes, i got to make a decision now. And so now he goes and we're told he sits in the judgment seat that was called the pavement. Now this judgment seat that Pilate sits on would have been elevated so that everyone could see him. The steps of the judgment seat where uh, most scholars believe were actually the thing that was known as the pavement that you had to walk up to to get there. 
But this judgment seat was the official place that Pilate declared sentence against people. And so sitting in this is a declaration of, all right, I'm at a point now where I need to make a decision and I'm going to make a decision about Jesus. But before he does, he tries one final plan. I really don't want to make this decision. And so I'm going to try one final thing to get out of it. And it's similar to the other things he's tried. It's a plan to appeal to the crowd and try to connect the crowd to Jesus, make them sympathize with Jesus. And notice the first time he brings out Jesus, he says, behold the man. But now he says something different in verse 14. He says, behold your king. The first time I was like, hey, Jesus is no threat. He's just a beat up man. All right, that didn't work. Hey, guys, behold, not the king, but your king. He's wanting to connect Jesus with the people who are there. Hey, this is your king, guys. Do you want me to kill your king? I mean, surely you want to release your king. He's wanting to draw that connection and, and make Jesus more personal to the people. But right when the religious leaders hear this, man, they're going to thwart that plan. And they say, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. But Pilate still doesn't give up. He says, shall I crucify your king? He's trying to get the crowd on Jesus' side. Doesn't want to make that decision against Jesus. But now the religious leaders make an extreme claim that kind of just destroys this whole plan of Pilate. They say this, we have no king but Caesar. Now that is... Such an extreme statement, especially coming from Jewish religious leaders. You know, history tells us that when Rome first came into Israel, they had one of the biggest rebellions against the Roman Empire from the Jews. And one of the big reasons why the Jews rebelled so much is they insisted that God alone was their king, not Caesar. Now, it's interesting that when God first established the nation of Israel, he established it as a theocracy meaning that God alone would be the one that would rule. No king, just him. They would just follow God. And that worked. But then finally there came a point in time in 1 Samuel where the people decided, you know what? We're tired of just being a theocracy. We want a king like all the other nations. We want to be ruled by a man, not ruled by God. Samuel's all upset and God says, you know what, Samuel? They're rejecting me, not you. We're going to give them a king. We're going to give them what they want. It was a horrible thing for them because almost all their kings were horrible kings and it was a really bad decision and they suffered a lot for it. But now at this point in time when Rome comes and they're saying, Caesar's now your king, they're like, no, 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 we only got one king and that is God and we are going to fight to the death in order to keep Caesar from being our king. And this is one of the reasons that Pontius Pilate was sent to Israel to begin with. He was sent there to ultimately crush any rebellion and to make sure people knew who the real king was, Caesar. So he's there to, to bring this authority, to bring this judgment. And I'm sure this must have shocked him because he knew how passionate, especially the religious leaders were, of the fact that we hate Caesar, we hate Rome, we hate their rule over us, and our king is God alone. And for them to make this statement, we have no king but Caesar, he's probably just like, what? What am I going to do now? How do, I, how do I move forward here? I'm trying to get people to say, hey, here's your king, Jesus. They're like, no, Jesus isn't our king. Caesar is our king. Interesting. 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Jews reject God the Father as their king and accept a man as their king in his place. And now here in John 19, 
The religious leaders reject God the Son as their king and accept Caesar in his place. William Barclay writes this, The Jews abandoned every principle they had in order to eliminate Jesus. In their hatred, they forgot all mercy. They forgot all sense of proportion. They forgot all justice. They forgot all their principles. They even forgot God. Never in history was the insanity of hatred so vividly shown. The religious leaders' hatred towards Jesus has led them to this insane response to do something that goes completely against who they are, who they claim to be, who they claim to follow. Hey, we don't have any king but Caesar, the one that we supposedly hate and want nothing to do with, but you know what? We hate Jesus even more. You know, this is something we clearly see in our world today. Many people like the religious leaders who have so much hate towards Jesus, towards Christianity, that it just makes them do insane things. Makes them say insane things. It makes them really go against what, you know, most people would think that this is who they are. And all of a sudden this is out of character that you guys are, what's going on? You know, one of the best ways to reach people who are behaving in this insane way because of their hatred is to pray for them. The fourth way we should respond to those who have not accepted Jesus is we should pray for them. You know, you're probably not going to be able to reason with someone we're in this state. Someone's so hate-filled and they're just kind of insane in the way in which they're thinking and dealing with things. And you try to get in there and you're like, you know what, I'm going to do 1 Peter 3.15. I'm going to be ready to give an answer. I'm going to you know, reason with this person. Well, they may not be in a reasonable state. So it's like, you know what, before I do that, I need to pray. I need to pray for this person. I need to pray that God would work in their mind and their heart. I need to pray that God would just help deal with this hate that's leading to this insanity of thinking insanity of behavior. And until God does that work, I might not be able to effectively reach them with the gospel, with love, with you know, uh, evidence for things. And not that I don't try with that, but I recognize, man, I need to spend lots of time praying for them before I even seek to try to practically reach them. And maybe you've recognized and seen that as you, know, you go and you try and it's like, I speak and it's like speaking to a brick wall. There's nothing. And then all of a sudden I go away and I start praying for this person. And maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, maybe it's years. And all of a sudden there's this difference. Now I come to this person and there, there's a difference in them. There's a reception. There's an openness. There's like a, a removal of the insanity of hatred that they've had for so long. And now they're willing to hear the gospel and, and oftentimes accept it. But the change comes when we persevere in prayer for them. And so if you have people in your life, I'm sure you do, you want to see them accept the gospel. Maybe you've shared the gospel with them many times. You show love to them. You've answered questions for them. None of those things seem to be working. You know what? I really challenge you. Pray for them regularly. And it might take a while. And just watch what prayer will do to impact their life for the gospel. So Pilate's tried four different plans to try to keep himself from making a decision against Jesus. None of them have worked. So now he's finally going to make a decision. Let's see what it is in verse 16. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate finally makes a decision, and it's a decision against Jesus. He decides to sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion, even though he knows that Jesus is innocent. 
And Pilate fought with this decision for quite some time. Four different plans he comes up with to try to avoid making this decision. And something I find very interesting is even when he finally comes to, I got to do this, I got nothing else, I'm going to make a decision as I sit here on the judgment seat, we're told that he does something to try to escape the consequence of this decision in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 27, 24 and 25 tells us, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that atonement was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Notice that Pilate tries to pass on the consequence of his decision to crucify Jesus onto the religious leaders. He he washes his hands. And says, hey, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man. Now, if Pilate truly wanted to be innocent of the blood of the just man, Jesus Christ, then he should have made a choice not to crucify him instead of saying, hey, you guys go ahead, crucify him. But you know what? Here we go. My hands are clean. I'm innocent. He's not innocent. He's made a choice against Jesus, made a choice to crucify Jesus. And he's just trying to escape the consequence. And it's not going to happen. You know, Pilate made this decision ultimately to please the crowd instead of pleasing God. He made it to be a friend of Caesar instead of a friend of Jesus. And it was the worst decision he ever made in his life. Now, just like Pilate, each one of us has to make a decision concerning Jesus, and there's no escaping that decision. You see, the reality is people who keep trying to put off the decision like Pilate did, that's a decision in itself. It's a decision not to accept Jesus. You're you're putting off accepting Jesus. And guess what? You keep doing that and you die. You're going to hell. That's a decision. It's a decision to reject him. There's only one way to accept him, and that's to truly put your faith in him, accept who he is, accept what he's done for you on the cross. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, have a relationship with God, spend an eternity in heaven, you have to make a decision to put your trust in the fact that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead. If you've been like Pilate and avoiding making a decision to accept Jesus, I encourage you to make a decision for him today. So in this passage, we see three responses of people towards Jesus. Those who don't want to make a decision. Those who mock the idea of him being God, of him being king, of him being savior. Those who hate Jesus and go to extreme lengths to destroy him. My main challenge for those of us who have already accepted him is how do we respond to a world that's responding in those negative ways towards Jesus? And there are four main things that we can do. Be ready to give an answer to them for why we believe in Jesus. Show Jesus' love to them. Share the gospel clearly to them and pray for them. Let's pray.